Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Apologetic series, recorded November 9th, 2021, titled Lee Strobel's Case for Christmas. You know, even when I was an atheist, I loved Christmas time. Now, everyone knows that if Lee Strobel had really been an atheist, he wouldn't love the season. He'd have been an officer in the war on Christmas. I wanted to separate the holiday from the holy day. Exactly. Decorating holiday bushes, kicking over private mangers. I began to probe into the nativity scenes that I'd see outside of churches. Forcing everyone's autocorrect to use Xmas and drinking hot chocolate from a red cup with only a little bit of holly on it. Back in those days, probably something a little more potent. All right, Mr. Strobel. Getting your solstice on. Christmas is built on uh, flimsy legends that developed in the many decades after Jesus lived. When you're right, you're right. Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. You may be familiar with Lee Strobel, the former investigative journalist who set out to prove that his wife was wrong. But after my wife Leslie became a Christian, and I started to investigate the identity of Jesus. But after the cold shoulder from her for a while, Lee concluded that she was right all along. Many husbands can relate. Lee turned his experience into a book called Case for Christ, and later the Case for Faith, Case for Easter, Case for a Creator, Case for Miracles, and so on, and so on. Well, today we're going to join Lee for his multi-part video seminar called Case for Christmas. I'm so glad that you're joining me for this four-week experience as we set aside Santa Claus and Christmas trees and delve instead into the question of what we can really know with confidence about the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. Lee used to make a living writing newspaper articles, so we can know that there will be no bias in his conclusions. When we investigate Christmas, we not only have to separate the commercial aspects of Christmas from the spiritual roots of the holiday, but we also need to drill down deeply into the historical record to determine exactly what did take place in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And by historical record... I assume Lee means the accounts at the beginning of the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, because that's pretty much what we've got. Because sometimes we find that legends have contaminated the actual account of what really took place. Let me give you an example. To prove that he's serious about finding the truth no matter what, the first thing Lee does is some debunking on that Christmas pageant notion that there was no room in the inn for Mary and Joseph. Pigpen, you're the innkeeper. In spite of my outward appearance, I shall try to run a neat inn. But skeptical investigative reporter Lee Strobel is super skeptical. He'd never just take something like this at face value without checking it out first. <laughs> I'm sorry if I pop any bubbles or meddle with any Christmas carols here, but there was probably no inn and probably no innkeeper. Many scholars doubt whether Luke is talking about a hotel at all. You see, the Greek word that many Bibles translate as inn is katalima, 
then ketalima is best translated as guest room. In fact, the NIV Bible translates Luke 2, verse 7, as saying that Mary gave birth, wrapped Jesus in cloths, and placed him in a manger, quote, because there was no guest room available for them. Many scholars say this is the most accurate translation. But then subsequent translations, uh, for some reason, and that includes the King James Version, use the word in, and that's become part of our Christmas culture. Those darn King James translators, never working from the best manuscripts, using funny words like unicorn, and excessively misinfluencing Western understanding of Scripture. Lee then elucidates with some archaeological trivia about first century Middle Eastern dwelling floor plans and why there were mangers in some inner rooms. So, what really happened on that first Christmas? Well, Joseph and the pregnant Mary arrived in Bethlehem to register for the census. They went to the house of a friend or a relative, but there was no room for them in the guest room, probably because of the crowd of people who'd already arrived for the census. So they were invited to stay in their family room, where Mary gave birth and the child was placed in the clean hay of a feeding trough. And now we know that Lee Strobel is a super skeptic, not afraid to take on the details of Christian tradition, no matter how inconsequential. So going forward, if he affirms any Christmas details as accurate, we know that he must have put them through the most rigorous of evidential ringers and skeptical filters because this is the man who debunked the innkeeper. Now, it's a legitimate question to ask whether we can trust the gospel accounts. How do we know they're telling us the truth? How do we know that they're reliable? Can we be sure that they're trustworthy when they describe the birth, the teachings, the death, and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus? Yes, this is a much better question. If you'd like to see more on the resurrection side of things, here's a playlist. But let's focus on the birth today. Well, I started out as a skeptic. But I eventually emerge convinced that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are accurate in what they tell us about Jesus. And I started out as a Christian, who eventually emerged convinced that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not accurate in what they tell us about Jesus. Neither of our backstories seem important to the evidence at hand. After all, each of these fall within the historical genre of ancient biographies which were intended, to one degree or another, to report what actually took place in the life of a notable person. To one extent or another, is carrying a lot of weight in that sentence. Regardless of where one sits on the highly contentious issue of the most accurate literary genre of the Gospels, it is undeniable that the books are intended to carry theological weight. The open question is, which was more important to the authors? The theological aims? Or historical methodology. That the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, could be classified as Greco-Roman biography is contentious, but at least defendable. The Gospel of John is clearly the least like an ancient biography. But since John contains no Jesus' birth narrative, we can set that aside for a discussion for another time. And as I've demonstrated in my books, these Gospels bear the earmarks of accuracy. First, they were written a lot closer to the events they describe than some of the critics claim. No need to bring critics into this. Lee thinks that the Gospels were written a lot earlier than mainline Jesus-affirming Christian scholars claim. How do we know? Well, let's consider the Gospel of Luke, which has the most details about the birth of Jesus. 
Luke was a physician and close companion of the Apostle Paul. We have no solid reason to think that the Gospel of Luke was written by Luke the physician. As Acts sometimes uses the pronoun we, some feel the book is likely to be written by a companion of Paul. Of the companions named in the Pauline letters, Luke was a potential candidate, and his status as a physician bolstered the potential that he was literate. As a bit of trivia, Luke is referred to as a doctor only in Colossians, which is one of the so-called letters of Paul that scholars consider to be forged, meaning that this attribution to Luke stands on even shakier ground. Scholars agree that he wrote the book of Acts. Well, scholars agree that whoever wrote Luke is also the author of Acts. That's not the same as agreeing that Luke wrote Acts. Which describes the early spread of Christianity. But the book ends unfinished because its central figure, Paul, is under house arrest in Rome. Now, we don't find out from Acts what happens to Paul. And beyond that, Acts doesn't describe several other major events that happened in the A.D. 60s, like the martyrdom of Peter and James, and the Roman Greco War, and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which happened in A.D. 70. So, Acts was apparently written before those events occurred meaning that we can date it before about A.D. 62. On its face, I understand why that sounds like a good argument. I certainly bought into it when I was a Christian. But a more sophisticated and comprehensive analysis of all the data leads the majority of evangelical Christian scholars to affirm a later dating of Acts. But rather than take my word for it, Let's hear what Lee's friend, Dr. Sean McDowell, said in response to the same argument. I had to wrestle with that argument mm -hmm. because I think there's a good case that can be made for that earlier dating. Mm -hmm. um, when I read even people like Keener, he cites other historical sources mm -hmm. that end at a certain period. And we know they're written later, but mm -hmm. they don't include later material. Right. And that wasn't uncommon in the ancient world at that time. Mm -hmm. So that's at least one point that gave me pause. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I have to ask, what is the purpose of what Luke is doing? Yeah. And part of what Luke is doing is he's writing to a Gentile audience and he's not softening the message of Jesus, mm -hmm. but I think he's trying to show it's more compatible with the Roman Empire than a lot of people think. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't mean he changed. It doesn't mean he tweaks. It means he tells the story in a certain fashion. And so I think arguably there's hints in the book of Acts that parallel the story of Jesus and Paul that tell us Paul is going to be crucified, but he's just not given it to us explicitly, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm I'm actually interviewing Keener the week after next, and I really want to unpack this with him and see how much he buys those parallels. Right. But that might be one reason he doesn't. Other scholars are like, maybe he was going to write a third book. I mean, there's a lot of possibilities here, I think, when we are when we move from arguments to silence. Mm -hmm. So I, I just, historically speaking, was not sure how much... I could get out of that argument. If Lee can't get the more educated Christians on board with this, I'm not sure how it should seem compelling to a Christmas skeptic. Now, we know that Acts is the second of a two-part work written by Luke, the earlier one being the Gospel of Luke. So we can date the Gospel of Luke to around A.D. 60, or perhaps a little bit earlier. But since you're basing your dating of Luke on your controversial and unlikely dating of Acts... 
then you're coming up with a date even more controversial and unlikely. Now, keep in mind that Jesus was killed in AD 30 or 33. So we're talking about a very short time gap. Even if we accept Strobel's controversial dating, that's still 30 years after the events. So, whether it's a short time gap depends entirely on what you think could have happened to a story in three full decades. And we know that one of Luke's sources was Mark. So his gospel is even earlier. Again, relative dating is only as good as the fixed point you're comparing it to. Now this dating is especially significant when you consider that one of the greatest historians who ever lived, A.N. Sherwin-White of Oxford University, determined that in the ancient world, the passage of two generations of time was not even enough for legend to grow up and wipe out a solid core of historical truth. This is a common apologist citation popularized by William Lane Craig first in a 1985 Truth Journal article and continuing right up to an online Q&A earlier this year. Legends typically take a long time to accrue. A.N. Sherman White, who is a classical historian in his book Roman Society and Roman Law in the New Testament, says that the writings of Herodotus enable us to test the rate at which legend accrues. And he says the tests show that even two generations is too short a time span to allow legendary and mythical tendencies to wipe out that hard core of historical fact. The trouble is that though Strobel says White determined this conclusion, and Craig says that tests show, neither of those characterizations hold up. In his 1960 book, Roman Society and Roman Law in the New Testament, over the course of a few pages, A.N. Sherman White ponders the tempo of the development of the didactic myths and comes up with precisely one comparative example. 5th century BC historian Herodotus and his telling of the assassination of Hipparchus. Roughly a generation after the event, Herodotus recorded the details without including some of the legendary exaggerations known to be circulating in the populace. White declares, Herodotus enables us to test the tempo of myth-making, and the tests suggest that even two generations are too short a span to allow the mythical tendency to prevail over the hard historic core of the oral tradition. That conclusion is a massive overreach based on a single example. Indeed, Herodotus proves that it is possible for a historical core to be reported, despite the existence of false narratives. This is entirely unremarkable. Of course it's possible, but this lone example says nothing about to what extent such historical accuracy is probable, let alone make the wildly unfounded extrapolation that mythical acceptance is impossible in two generations. To be clear, White did no published research on the myth-making tempo. He did no studies. He performed no test. It has been 60 years since his casual observation, with no follow-up corroboration. White cited one example where a historian ignored local legend and declared that occurrence to be a rule, and that's supposed to be the end of the debate. If all it takes is one example then allow me to refer back to Strobel's earlier debunking of the innkeeper. Clearly, the majority of Christmas retellings include the concept of no room at the inn, so a faulty interpretation has prevailed over Lee's interpretation. 
By White's logic, I should therefore conclude that faulty interpretations always prevail. No, clearly this is a fallacious path. And where White's proposal was limited to prevalence, Craig and Strobel push further to a standard that legend must completely wipe out history. To wipe out that hardcore of historical fact. And wipe out a solid core of historical truth. And thus set themselves up with an impossible burden of proof. By definition, a historian could never identify a fact that has been wiped out. If we are aware of a fact, it has not been erased from history. Anything that has been erased from history, we cannot study. We might as well ask how many conspiracies have been successfully kept secret. We can't know. As soon as we're aware of it, it's no longer secret. But I digress. The point is that this supposed two-generation timeline, as touted by lazy apologists, is completely meaningless as a metric for legendary development. Forget White's single success story. History is replete with lies, exaggerations, and honest misunderstandings that pop up and take hold in days and hours, despite readily available countering facts. Fake news is a recent label, but it is not a new phenomenon. And yet, Luke's gospel was written within the same generation when Jesus lived. That depends on what you mean by generation. But even if Luke had been written the week after Jesus died, that doesn't tell us that the birth narrative is accurate. A second reason we can trust the gospels is that archaeology has consistently affirmed the biblical record to the point where Luke has been described by scholars as a first-rate historian. This is true. In his 1915 book, The Bearing of Recent Discovery on the Truthfulness of the New Testament, Christian archaeologist Sir William Ramsey wrote, Luke is a historian of first rank. The recent discoveries referenced in the book title are over 100 years old at this point, but that's fine. In fact, sometimes skeptics have believed that Luke was wrong about something, only to have later discoveries prove that, well, Luke was right after all. Let me just give you an example. Luke says that after Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, he grew up in Nazareth. That's a strange example to use to bolster the historian prowess of the author of Luke. About 40% of the content of the book of Luke is copied directly from the book of Mark. Both Matthew and Luke are essentially Mark with bonus material. Now, it is in Mark chapter 1 that we find out that Jesus is from Nazareth. So this detail arrives in Luke's book via that source, not Luke's independent historical work. This video you're watching now is probably a third Lee Strobel's work, and two-thirds my own thoughts and learning from non-Strobel sources. If, somewhere down the road, someone wanted to point to this video as evidence that Polygia is a good researcher, or a bad researcher, as the case may be, it would be strange for them to cite the debunking of the innkeeper as example evidence. I simply copied that part from Strobel. Just like Nazareth is really a detail from Mark. Okay, that's a nitpick, but it's Christmas, and time for little gifts. Yet, skeptics claim for years that Nazareth didn't even exist in the first century. And Lee will go on to spend a while telling us how in 2006... First century Nazareth was archaeologically affirmed. If you're a longtime viewer of the channel, you've no doubt heard me express how the names of people and towns isn't an affirming detail for events. For the common example, Peter Parker lives in New York, but the existence of New York doesn't affirm an actual Spider-Man. 
for me, the biggest takeaway is that arguments from silence are problematic, even when skeptics use them. Anyone in previous generations who held that the Gospels are inaccurate, because Nazareth hadn't been discovered, would have been committing a form of the black swan fallacy, something to be avoided. But then, why don't Mark and John describe the birth of Jesus? Some skeptics have said that the absence of a birth narrative in those two Gospels, as well as in the writings of the Apostle Paul, undermines the historical record about how Jesus entered the world. But this, friends, is an argument from silence. And arguments from silence are notoriously unconvincing. I agree. Not all the Gospels report each and every event in Jesus' life. In fact, John, being the last gospel that was written, doesn't repeat a lot of the material that was already known in the earlier gospels, including the Sermon on the Mount. I just want to point out that this is admission that the author of John was aware of the contents of the other gospels when he wrote it. This will come up later. Yet, interestingly, someone who tradition tells us was personally mentored by John the Apostle surely emerged believing in the virgin birth. His name was Ignatius. Lee was correct to say that tradition tells us that Ignatius was mentored by John the Apostle, because Ignatius himself tells us no such thing. Of the 15 letters that claim to be from Ignatius, scholars affirm only seven of these as possibly authentic. Oddly, in none of these letters does Ignatius mention John, his supposed mentor, even in his letter to Polycarp, the other person alleged by Wallace to be a student of John. The only explicit tie of Ignatius to John is found in the Epistle of Ignatius to the Virgin Mary. However, this letter is universally rejected as authentic, having been written not in Greek, but Latin, and in the 5th or 6th century, not the 2nd. Ignatius' inclusion in this list can be from church tradition only, since this is one of those rare cases of literally no textual evidence for a claim. Strobel began this video by demonstrating that the tradition of the innkeeper is dubious, but is now resting part of his case on mere tradition. Seems inconsistent to me. And he became the Bishop of Antioch. Now, in the year AD 108, he wrote a letter in which he explicitly says that Jesus was, quote, truly born of a virgin. Now, where did he learn that from? Could it be that he learned it from his mentor, the author of the Gospel of John? No. Lee just admitted that the author of the Gospel of John was aware of the content of Luke and Matthew. So even if the author of John told Ignatius, the explanation with the fewest assumptions is that the author of John learned this from the Gospels of Luke and Matthew, rather than the extra assumptions that he was a personal eyewitness. And it's even fewer assumptions if we posit that Ignatius skipped the middleman and learned of the virgin birth by reading the Gospels himself. And that's not just speculation. Historians generally agree that Ignatius is referencing passages of Luke in his letters. He's read it. Occam's razor should apply here. As for Mark, he simply doesn't deal with Jesus' early years in his Gospel. That's a literary choice he made. However, he does implicitly reference the unusual nature of Jesus' birth when he quotes someone in Mark 6, verse 3, as referring to Jesus as, quote, the son of Mary. Now, normally, a Jewish person would be identified with his father's name, even if his dad were deceased. But here we have an implicit acknowledgement that Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. Something was unusual about his birth. Even when I was a biblical inerrantist Christian, I had a hard time believing that passages where the author was quoting a crowd were intended to be exactly word for word that could merit modern quotation marks. 
This is the case here. The nebulous crowd is allegedly calling Jesus the son of Mary. Is that the author inserting an implicit reference? Or is the author actually quoting word for word? Keep in mind that Lee Strobel would admit that Mark was not a first-hand witness to the event. Or is this merely a quirk in wording with no intended deeper meaning? I'm told that the Greek in Mark is unsophisticated. And with Strobel's interpretation, we'd need to assume that Jesus being conceived out of wedlock with a non-Joseph father was common knowledge. If the Gospels are accurate, then Mary and Joseph were engaged at the time of the conception, and Joseph tried to handle the situation privately. So this is a lot of gray area and conjecture. As for why the Apostle Paul doesn't mention the circumstances of Jesus' birth, the answer is that it simply wasn't relevant to the issues that prompted him to write the epistles. Besides, Paul doesn't mention a lot of details about Jesus that are already covered in the Gospels. Paul's letters were written at least 10 years before the Gospels, so whatever reason he had for excluding Jesus' stories... It wasn't because people already had the Gospels. For instance, he never mentions Mary or Joseph or Nazareth. So are we to presume they didn't exist? Of course not. Fair enough. Paul mentions almost nothing about earthly Jesus. What we get from Paul is that Jesus hung out with disciples, ate a meal once, and died. Paul talks about Jesus' earthly life so little, it's impossible to be confident what Paul knew or what he would have endorsed. So what have we learned so far? that the historical record of the birth of Jesus needs to be taken seriously. Wait, when did we learn that it needs to be taken seriously? Maybe I'll have to watch it again. The Gospels are our best source about what really took place 2,000 years ago. Which is problematic for anyone unconvinced of the reliability of the Gospels. If it were all a fairy tale akin to Santa Claus and elves, we could dismiss it as merely being, you know, a, a childhood fantasy without any practical implications for our lives. Again, that's a problem. Because I'm not sure that the story of virgin birth is any different than one of Santa and elves. I thought we were here to determine this, not to presume it. But because it's true, Christmas cannot be ignored. In the end, the child in the manger deserves our allegiance and he deserves our worship. Your tiny Jesus, your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled up fist pawing. He was a man, he had a beard. Look, I like the baby version the best, do you hear me? If you haven't turned over your worries or your problems to him, then I hope that by the end of this study, that you will. Well, I'm a long way from there. But hey, there are three more parts. Maybe you'll pull off a Christmas miracle. Believe me, that would make this the best Christmas of all. If part two is already available when you're watching this, tap the thumbnail on screen now, and I'll see you over there. Later. Later.